Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Brad Corgan, musician and member of the band Dispatch. He successfully pursued a solo music career as the president of Love, Light & Melody, a nonprofit organization battling physical, emotional, and the spiritual effects of extreme poverty. Brad, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on, Will. So as the world has changed due to COVID times, how have you made sure to stay productive and keep going and moving forward in such a weird and difficult time? I don't think productivity and moving forward for me in this season right now is my primary focus. I think I was so focused on that for so long that I didn't really have much balance in that. So this has been a really interesting time. I've been married for a year. We have our a baby boy who's nine weeks old. I was supposed to be on tour all year long, and I would have missed my wife's pregnancy in large part. I would have been flying back and forth from shows. I am so fortunate to be on the side of I have everything that I need, and COVID has created a bubble of recalibrating and trying to figure out how to to your point, still be productive, still be passionate, still be committed to the things that my heart beats for, but also create a little more self-reflecting on balance and just like, all right, this is amazing to get. I've never been in a place this long in my adult life. Never. I've always been bumping all over the place. So I'm really grateful to have the time to think about how would I define success and productivity if I look back on the last nine or 10 months, what have I learned and what do I want to carry forward into when we have all of our freedoms restored? But yeah, it's been a really thoughtful, interesting time and one where I'm just really grateful to have been by my wife's side while she's having her body slowly taken over by this little grommet. <laughs> During this time, you know, focusing on balance and having a time to just reflect, have there been any important messages you've been able to tell yourself or been able to learn in the pause? I think life is just as spiritual as it is physical. And I think when we have all of our freedoms, we tend to move so fast and so furiously and so physically that a lot of times we're not taking inventory of how healthy we are spiritually or emotionally, mentally. I think it's so pivotal that we realize Life is so fragile and such a gift. And a lot of the things that our society values, those things come and go, whether it's money or material or accolades or accomplishments. But relationship is so key. There are a lot of people that can accomplish the world at the cost of their own spirit, at the cost of their own soul. And I think a lot of people would probably walk that back and try to figure out how to be a little more focused in on being available to the ones that you love the most and having a very strong root system in relationship and in faith or spiritual belief, just some practice that builds your spirit up as much as your physical activity does. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Have there been any practices that you've implemented into your day-to-day -day life that help you build that spirit a little bit more? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I've always felt like as an artist, I love the idea of what prayer is. I think prayer, almost like a jazz musician, 
you learn, you learn, you learn, you learn. You're filling your head with every possible time signature key that you could play in, just filling yourself with musical bits, language bits, knowledge to be as fluent as possible. But then as soon as you start performing as a jazz musician, all of that stuff is gone, all of the thinking and the training, and you're just reacting and moving and breathing and having a conversation with the other players. I think prayer for me grounds me in a sense of purpose. I really do believe that there is a loving creative force in the world that builds us into relationship with people that creates opportunities and open doors for us to connect and collaborate. And man, when I pray, I feel like it's the equivalent to slowing down, breathing, maybe becoming a little less self-centered because I think whenever I've been the most selfish in my life, I might've accomplished the most on paper, but I'll tell you, it's, it's every time I do that, it's when I get the emptiest. So coming up with a way to pray each day. And I just spend a lot of time believing there as an artist, as I'm, I'm a little artist, little a artist and believing there's a capital a artist that has created a world of beauty and pain and has created a world of opportunity to remain like a kid but look at these huge things. Like years ago, I went to a trash dump. You mentioned Love, Light, and Melody. I went to a trash dump in Nicaragua and found kids living there. You're 17, Will. There were a handful of 15 and 18-year-olds that had lived in the trash dump for so long. It was home. That was their home neighborhood and community. And they had endured such a brutal and hard life, but they could still smile. They were super generous, even though we would say they were so poor, they had nothing. Anyway, there's just this sense of, I think our spirits can lead us to really cool sort of divine appointments with people. We can meet people, feel synergy with them. We can look at really dark, brutal realities like this trash dump community, but go into it with a childlike belief that there's something here that's beautiful. There's something that's going to be redeemed. There's something here that can be sung about. There's a mural that can be painted. There is something that we can do together, even though we don't speak the same language. And I think when you approach life from a relational standpoint and from your spirit, just as much as from your head, I think there's so many gifts for us that are just waiting for us to be found. Yeah, of course. So I do want to dive into how you became so spiritual and so engaged in that. But before we get there, let's go back to the beginning Let's start with your childhood. You know, it's Denver, Colorado. The year is 1974. What do you like as a kid? Well, 1974, I don't have a lot of really clear memories. I came into the world in that year. And I would say I started to remember things maybe when I was six or seven. And then my first memory really that I think connects with who I am today my grandpa was just this big six foot three, bald, big man with a really deep voice. And he loved to sing. And I remember being five, six, seven years old and listening to him sing, whether it was in church or in this semi-pro choir that he was in, or even at home. And I just thought, I want to do what he does. I want to be like him. And so I jumped into the Colorado Children's Chorale 
somewhere around that age and found out I had a voice and I really enjoyed it. And I sang from that point in my life all the way to today. And Colorado otherwise was just a place of like really amazing natural beauty. Loved the mountains, loved camping, loved sports and being in the outdoors. And so I think as a kid, music was just awesome to lean into. And also anything that had a sport connected to it, I just loved it. Yeah. Can you talk about life at home and what the values your parents were passing on to you or what they really emphasized? Life at home was my sister, two years older than me, Kelly. She and I were super close and both of us grew up looking at our parents who were very spiritual people, really devout Christians. They were super generous. My dad used to work for a ministry called Prison Fellowship where they would go into prisons and spend time with the men and women who were coming toward the end of their sentence and trying to get them back into society. My mom was always super generous. And I just felt like I watched my parents' value system and their faith and their actions. And like we all do, kind of put them on trial and slowly but surely realized that like they're talking what they're giving us. But it still wasn't something that I really knew how to embrace. But I really appreciated my parents' generosity and the way that they loved people well. And I just think from a really early age, my parents were super wealthy until I was 14 and I didn't know it. I really didn't know what wealth was or the flip side of the coin. But strangely, when I was 14 or 15, floor dropped out of the oil industry And then there were a couple of investment scandals in Denver where my dad lost everything. And we went from super wealthy to bankrupt. And so when I was 14, there's a line in the sand there, you know, where the one house I lived in, the bedroom I always had, the country club I always went to, the private school I went to, the lacrosse I played, everything changed. And we switched schools and started essentially living in homes that were for sale because we couldn't afford to buy another one. So I went from super rooted to living in 10 different homes through high school and just having this sense of like, man, you can have tons of money and you can have no money and it can go by like that. But my dad kept leaning into us. And I think he really showed me the currency of time spent was way more valuable than the currency of what he could spend, let's say on my 16th birthday when he really didn't have it to give me a gift. And that change and seeing him still remain the same and focus and give time to you, what did you really learn from the loss of money that you experienced there? Well, what is your truest treasure? What can't be lost? If you can have a ton of money and you can have none, if you can have your health and you can have unhealth, what is there in your life that can't be taken from you? And what is the deepest treasure there? And I think, again, that's your attitude. And that's your spirit. And if your spirit and attitude are healthy and always connecting with other people and in other relationships, I just learned so much about friendship and about family and about trust and about community that, you know, as an individual, we can get pretty isolated and pretty freaked out that we may not, you know, like what's going to happen if, and then fill in the blank. But if you really realize that you've got your own family, your own community, and a lot of people who believe in you and would do anything to support you, 
then you also should be willing to do anything and support the people that you love. And as a community, life is much easier to look at. The scariest moments aren't so scary. So I think just the power of relationship and realizing that the greatest thing you can give to someone is your time. And is there a system or steps that you follow to maintain that attitude when faced with hardship, when faced with struggle, you know, the times when you really think that you wouldn't want to have that attitude or you start to lose it? Well, answering that from being 46, answering that as a husband and a dad, answering that from in my own adult life, having had some material resources and no material resources, I would say that my spiritual beliefs, my prayer life, the way I'm trying to keep my attitude on the rails on great days and on not great days, I would say that that anchor, that spiritual anchor is the most important thing because you can weather any storm. I mean, if things are going great, awesome. The reality of life is for most people, things are not always going great. And individually and community-wise, we're learning so much about how broken the world is right now. And I think it's a really profound time because it drives each of us to each other. And it also drives each of us to like, what do we believe at the core, the deepest level of who we are? What are the statements or what are the agreements, the core values that we hold to where, you know what, this is where my anchor is and this storm is going to pass. And in the meantime, I'm going to try to be a refuge for as many people as I can. And when we come out on the other side, I really hope we don't go right back to the fast lane. I, I hope we come out on the other side more compassionate and more aware that we really do need each other and belong to one another. Yeah. So with you personally, have there been any times where that really stand out when your anchor was untethered and you struggled to maintain that attitude, but eventually you got it back? I would say I was so interested in dispatch so passionately engaged in it for the first seven years that we started the band thinking like this is just going to be fun let's see if we can get paid with pizza let's see if we can have three or four of our friends sing a song with us and we weren't intending to be in a band and then it slowly started to take off and after five six seven years of pursuing this thing all in all three of us, Chad and Pete and I, I think burned out so hard that we were like, it was as if we had climbed a mountain for seven years. We get to the summit where everyone's starting to applaud and we don't even want to be there. We don't want to take in the view. We were not sure if it was worth it. We're so exhausted that we couldn't even enjoy the moment. So probably in my early thirties, when our band broke up, and we each went our different way. We didn't tell our fans. We just went on hiatus. We went on the H word and we're taking a break, but we knew that we were breaking apart. And I was so lost thinking, wait a minute. I didn't think my identity was in the band. I thought my identity was in my spirit and in my attitude and in my family and in everything that I thought I was rooted in. Clearly my anchor was in the band. So when it went away, I kind of went through a free fall. And that's when I said yes to a trip to Nicaragua to work with kids in an orphanage to play guitar and soccer for them. And I was like, all right, why not? I didn't go with the best attitude. But when I got there, man, it was this like, oh, I said yes to a door. 
moved through it. And here were all these incredible treasures, all these mirrors reflecting back to me. You know, you're not in a band. That's not who you are. That's something that you did. Maybe you'll do it again. But like you are a human, you're a heartbeat, your breath, your laughter, your tears, and you're here. So it just taught me to be really present that first trip to Nicaragua and toward the, it was only a three and a half day trip. And on the very last day, the taxi driver, the Nicaraguan driver that was taking me back and forth to the orphanage told me he wanted to show me a community where kids needed us more. I didn't speak Spanish at the time. I didn't understand what he was asking, but he took us into the city landfill. And that's where I saw kids laughing and smiling and behind them was the most hellish landscape I'd ever seen in my life. And that moment is me being brought back to having an anchor in who I am, what I believe. And a guitar is actually a means to an end and a soccer ball or a lacrosse stick, a means to an end. These are fun, amazing things. But my life identity shouldn't flow into those things. My life should be much more deeply grounded. So that was really the beginning of finding out who I was and rebuilding those roots. So I do want to talk about that, but I want to go back to your childhood. Let's go to the year 1991. The newest big album is Nevermind by Nirvana. The top oh, yeah. song is I Do It For You by Brian Adams. Gas is $1.12. What's life like for you as a high schooler? Man, I'm 17. I'm Will Brigger. <laughs> I am playing lacrosse. And really excited about my first band, the Wood River Bandits. We were called the Rubber Band for a year and thought, come on, we can do better than that. So we were the Wood River Bandits, my high school mates. Pearl Jam, oh my gosh, Pearl Jam was so incredible. I I had listened to ACDC in junior high and a little bit of high school, loved it. But somehow when Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden and kind of the Seattle grunge scene happened. Alice in Chains, there was some acoustic music that was brought into some melody and acoustic influence that was brought into rock and roll. And I just loved it. I mean, I went all in. And then shortly thereafter, the samples and the Dave Matthews band and Ben Harper became a more acoustic left turn or right turn. And between the grunge scene, and kind of this new acoustic world beat reggae rock thing. Those two genres of music really captured me. Yeah. Are there any moments from, you know, other than this new type of music that you're listening to and that's inspiring you to follow your music career, are there any other moments that stand out as pivotal in your high school experience and help shape your character a lot? Well, I think what did shape my character a ton, I hinted at it, but Up through ninth grade, I had gone to one school. I'd had one group of friends. 10th, 11th, and 12th grade was the big jump for me over to a public school, huge high school, and completely different walk of life, not being rooted in an address. Three times a year, we were switching homes and living more from duffel bags and boxes than living from a grounded sense of stability. And, you know, that's a scary time, I think, to be 15, 16, 17, when you're trying to figure out who you are and when you're asking really big questions. And I couldn't even answer the question of where I was going to go home to sometimes. The friendships I had were so deep because of it. I wouldn't change anything. I think because I really realized, wow, these six best friends of mine, they're kind of all I've got, all I can count on. And 
it was incredible to go that deep that early and then hope that that would carry me through the rest of my life, my appreciation for relationship. With the outward struggles that you're going through, the ones that people can see, but you're also asking these spiritual questions and you're trying to make these deep friends on the inside. How are you doing the second thing if you have these outward struggles? How do you focus on the things that are not immediate needs? Well, there was a ton of dissonance between my outward look and feel, kind of the mask and the stuff that I was going through internally. I was such a people pleaser and was so kind of insecure. I just wanted to belong. I just wanted to have people think that I was fun and cool. And the idea of not being fun and cool and loved meant that I would do just about anything. And at the same time, so I'm partying on the weekends, not really sure if I even like alcohol, but I'm drinking because everyone else is drinking. And it seems like, well, if the lacrosse team is doing that or this cool group of people are doing that, well, then I'm going to. And didn't get into drugs, smoked weed a little bit. And same thing. I was like, I genuinely don't like how this feels. But with a couple of these friends of mine, I feel I'm connecting with them more. So maybe I'll try it. So I think at that stage of my life, it was what is relationship built on? Do I have to drink or do drugs or be an all-star lacrosse player? Or is it what I do that means I have friendships with people? Or is it who I am? And it took some time to figure out who your true friends are, the ones that don't care what you do. And they, they'll celebrate your successes, but they're going to be there for you no matter what because of who you are, not who you're pretending to party with on the weekends. Yeah, sure. And were there any steps that helped you really learn the valuable friends rather than the fake average friends? I was a part of a youth group called Young Life. It was this non-denominational Christian youth group that was about as much fun as anything I had ever done. There were athletes that were there. It was just a really broad, really diverse group of people. And most of the centering, most of the connection was around laughter. I mean, the skits were hilarious and the activities were hilarious and the games we would play. Everything that we did was so built on laughter. And that laughter was supposed to tease out some vulnerability about, well, who are you really? And what are the questions that you're asking right now? And some kids who had parents that were getting divorced and they were really freaked out, they all of a sudden had a small little window to say, hey, I'm not doing that great because of this. And as one person would be vulnerable, then the rest of us would be a little more vulnerable. And what I learned in young life was vulnerability inspires vulnerability. Generosity inspires generosity. Yeah. Well, if you're going to lean in and say, hey, Brad, I got to be honest, man, I'm not doing great today. And here's why. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. That's my heart space. And how are you doing? Man, I would be like, Will, you honor me. Thanks for sharing that. And here's my experience. Is there anything I can do to help serve you and uplift you and where you are or anything I can share that would help? And that process of living with some vulnerability and trying to go against the current of just wearing your mask and pretending like everything's okay, that was huge. So if I hadn't had that touch point to young life and to learning about vulnerability, I'm not sure where I would be today. I really don't know. Yeah.
now that we're at a halfway point and we've gotten to a logical, chronological stopping point, I want to go to the coffee break, the segment where you tell a story that's funny or embarrassing rather than inspirational or to advise. Is there any moment that you turn red laughing at yourself that stands out to you? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So when I was a senior in college, so I had met Chad and Pete and we were just, we were in that early stage. We weren't a band. We just made music and were curious if people would listen to it. No aspirations as far as a career. And I was a music major. So I was studying a lot of music classes, but I'm illiterate. I don't read music. So the only reason I was even able to study music at Middlebury College is my advisor was like, hey, this is what you love to do. I'll help you figure out how to compose and how to read and write. Don't think because you don't read music that you're going to flunk out of this deal. So I was really grateful that I was able to still pursue music. But there was a rehearsal for each of us wrote musicals one semester. And then we picked one and people were trying out for the parts. And I just was convinced that I'm a good enough singer that I'm going to be able to grab this piece of music and sing it in a compelling way and the audition will go great. And I grabbed that sheet of music and looked at it and was up in front of the class. And it's as if someone had given me like, hey, read this poem in Japanese. I had no clue what to do. And started to sing and my voice cracked and at least the lyrics were there so I could keep the words flowing. But man, I sweated more in that moment and just my heart was racing. And in that class, I don't think I was typically someone that everyone else thought would be nervous. But when I realized in front of everyone, they're watching me, I'm trying out, the piano's being played, and I don't know what the freaking notes are that I'm singing. Dude, I was mortified. All to say, I didn't get the part. And I think at some point, my advisor put her arm around me and was like, hey, nice try. Didn't work out, but don't sweat it. There'll be other ones in the future. So now can you read music? Nope, but I don't (laughs) fake it. (laughs) How did you bounce back from that embarrassing moment, turning red in front of everyone and messing up on stage? Honestly, Will, I was just scared shitless. I was had such performance anxiety as a junior and a senior. Again, let's talk about our, the mask versus reality. On the outside, I think people thought, oh, this guy's fun, mellow, easy to be around and good at what he does. And inside, I am dying for affirmation. And I'm a total perfectionist and really scared to sing. So there's a way to sing. You and I could watch people sing on YouTube. There are some people that sing and they really tighten up their voice. Even if their body language looks like they're relaxed, you can tell that their voice is like a laser beam. That's your inside being so tight and tense that you're focusing your voice into a really, really tight beam. And then there are those that sing so open and their breath is huge and their voice just is is this like character in the room. It's just big and dimensional. I was so tight and so laser beam focused in my singing because I had almost perfect pitch, which is a blessing and a curse. Almost perfect pitch means, well, you can tell when you're off. The increments of being sharp or flat, your ear like you're on a different key. So I tried to laugh off that experience, but 
I lost a lot of confidence, really lost a lot of confidence on, should I be standing up in front of people? Am I a performer? Should I stop doing this music thing? Because if I could have read, then I probably would have been safe. I mean, your mind can be so filled with all kinds of negative thoughts. And if you give power to those, it's pretty hard to make a comeback. So gratefully, I think Chad and Pete were so fun to strum with outside of taking classes that I loved the freedom of singing without reading. I loved reacting to one of Chad's songs or Pete's songs. I loved harmonies that we would work on. So I think there was another stream of music happening outside of the class that salvaged my confidence still. Yeah, yeah. To gain back that confidence, even though you had that other stream of music, was there anything you did? How did you get yourself to go up on stage to perform again? Or were there any other steps that really mattered in gaining that confidence back? I think the only reason I kept going back on stage was that Pete and Chad were my buds. It was completely about being on a team, having dear friends to your right and your left, feeling like you were a part of something bigger than just you. If my only opportunities to sing were solo, if it was solo opera or if it's solo anything, even if I was a solo singer-songwriter, I'm not sure that I had enough confidence to put myself in front of people over and over again because my heart was racing. But good people, good friendships, and Chad and Pete being able to laugh more than I could meant a lot to me. I learned a lot from them how to not take yourself so seriously, how to have almost perfect pitch and not wince when you're singing off key or someone else is. Just laugh and, and correct. Yeah. So you mentioned Chad and Pete, Chad Stokes and Pete Francis, and you guys started your band. As you had said before, you didn't think it was going to be anything. You were playing for pizza and it eventually started to grow. When did you know that you were going to be able to make a career out of music? I think when we were about two and a half, three years into making music together, we started seeing the same people showing up at some of our, if we had a gig for a hundred people, And we started to recognize the same people and they're singing the songs and starting to travel a little bit to hear us play. It occurred to us, maybe we are a band. So we had put out two albums of songs, but I mean, that was more like, hey, let's collect these songs and record them before we forget them. Yeah. And it was a cool feeling when Duke University, I remember I used to keep track of all of our gigs and all of the pay. And it went from $260 to play at Kappa Sig and This one is Cosmic Cantina Burrito Shop. They're going to pay us with burritos and 50 bucks for gas. And like, I would keep track of that stuff. And then after a year or two, we had this big jump where we got paid $1,700 to play a quad at Duke University. That was enough to drive our Suburban all the way down and to stay in hotels a couple of the nights instead of sleeping on friends' floors. And it really did slowly but surely become a business. And we realized that, wow, there are some dollars coming in now and we can charge more when we return to playing a particular venue. And it was a neat experience. We were in our early 20s, so it didn't have to go the career business route, but we were also wild enough and needed very, very little to get by that we could slowly but surely build together a bit of a business model and a career path. And how did you know that there was the career you wanted to follow? You had always done it just out of personal joy and excitement for music, but how did you know you wanted to make it a life 
And then how did you actually make it a reality to be your life beyond starting to make a little bit more money at shows? Well, I've got the gift of hindsight right now. And I would say, I would encourage anyone that is panicked about something. So if it's me standing in front of a class in music and my heart is racing and I'm panicked, but for some reason I chose to stand up in front of that class, usually what's beyond our greatest fear is our greatest treasure. And I don't know why that is, but there's some sort of divine mystery to it where the more I realize I'm not talking about jumping off a cliff, that's the kind of fear that should keep you from doing that. But relationally and in pursuit of your passion or just being authentic to who you are, the scariest stuff is usually when you're considering doing what you love to do. And the scarier that scenario, the more I really do think people should lean in and have good friends around them that are encouraging them. And it didn't take too long for the performance anxiety I felt and that squeezed voice and just the struggle of feeling confident and comfortable in my own skin. That heartbeat went from fearful to just loving it. My heart would beat. I loved going up on stage and playing the drums. I loved going up and singing with Chad and Pete and our bandmates. And I think it's really important for, I mean, Will, you're 17. And if we had a 25-year-old we were talking to right now, and then a 36-year-old, and then me at 46, I think all of us would say the same thing. The older you get, the more you realize how valuable time is and that you're not guaranteed. And so why delay becoming who you are? Why delay taking the risk of standing on who you want to be and pursuing the things that give you that sense of purpose and that rush of endorphins and just joy and laughter? I know tons of people who are, quote, successful that I went to school with that are not happy. The hell is the point of being successful if you're not happy? And then I'd say, what is the definition of success? So I think success is where you find purpose, joy, laughter, and a desire to return over and over again, met with relationship, growth, and some level of getting by financially or with resources. But I really do believe if you're doing what you love, that stuff will come. That stuff will work itself out. It's more important that you build muscle memory and spirit memory of being really steely and committed to doing what you love. Yeah. But could you say you had that definition of success at the beginning of your career? I mean, when you were just starting to be a band, were you focused more on monetary fame and having people see you and be like, oh, that's Brad Corrigan, the drummer from Dispatch. How did that definition change over time? Yeah, it's a really good point, Will. I mean, what we were living for in the first iteration of the band was chasing the illusion of success. When are we going to have made it? Everyone's saying you're almost there. Where is there? Oh my gosh, you just got in front of X number of people in Boston and you sold out in New York and you met with so-and-so from this record label and you're almost there. You're almost there. There's this sense of chasing something that I'm not even sure if, is it in front of us? And are we running loops? I mean, we exhausted ourselves chasing money, chasing fame. I wanted us to be on Rolling Stone. 
I wanted us to have a hit on the radio. I wanted us to be known. I wanted our music known, but there was a lot of ego that was wrapped up in that first seven years. And I think all three of us would say our egos got the best of us. And gratefully, we walked away instead of continuing to remain in a place where we were pretty empty and pretty exhausted. Now, looking back, I would say with real clarity, man, it's nice when you have a paycheck, but it's also doesn't matter if you don't have one when you love the people that you work with. You don't enjoy the people that you work with and you're surrounded by your paycheck. There's going to be a day where you realize it's not worth it and that the barometer for success is really how much do you look forward to the work that you do and the people who you're working with? And is it having an impact on other people's lives? Because if what you do isn't shining a light for others to figure out more of what they're designed to do, this is my definition. I don't think you're on the right track. If I'm on track, I'm screwed in like a light bulb and the light's on. And people who aren't quite in that place, they're flickering and they're wondering, where's their light? Why don't they have it? They'll come and say, hey, man, you seem really lit up. You seem really fired up and passionate about what you do. What do you see in me? What do you think I'm passionate for? I may have money. I may have the CEO position. I may be the top athlete or whatever it is. I may look like I'm a success, but I don't feel fulfilled and purposed and my spirit. There's something in my spirit that's not, it's not quite right. What is it? So I'd say you just have to recalibrate what success means and think, are you a screwed in light bulb? Is your light on display through what you do and what you love? And are other people finding some inspiration through looking at what you do? And how does the average person do that recalibration? You obviously you took your hiatus from that path to success in the music world. You took a hiatus and you took some time to reflect on yourself, but how does the average person do that recalibration? Man, I would have to bring it back to spirit. I asked some really big questions. God, are you real? Are you the same one that my parents pray to? What does it mean to be a part of this faith structure? Jesus, are you real? Is your life real? If I'm saying I'm following you, that means I've got to identify with the way you led your life. Are you real? I feel lost here. I feel afraid here. I feel depressed here. Are you real? Somehow in that asking, God, are you there? Asking the universe, is there a creative loving force in the universe that we are interacting with and can be in relationship with, that is the recalibration. I think if I didn't have that, I wouldn't feel like I was on any rails. I think I would always be trying to find something that worked, but I think I wouldn't feel like I was really on rails and fine to go fast on those rails when you feel like things are firing. And when you feel like your spirit and your physicality and your community and your family, when you feel like you're really balanced, but when you feel empty and you feel like the shit's hitting the fan and nothing is really working, I think it's important to stop, test the rails you're on, ask those big questions in your spirit. And I journaled a ton. I bet I have 50 journals that are filled from age 
15 to age 35. I journaled everything in my life because it was stuck in my head and stuck in my heart. And maybe, well, that's the place where I was the most vulnerable is I would write my journal entries from the perspective of speaking to my spiritual fathers, my spiritual parents. Hey, today's been a tough day, but I really do think I'm learning from it. Are you there? It was a relationship that was happening between my pen, paper, and spirit, but it kept me testing the rails that I was on, and I'm still doing it. I don't think you ever get to a point where you've arrived. I think underpinning to a faith is doubt. If you don't question what you believe, your beliefs to me are just in the wind. But since faith is about the things that we can't see, we're constantly asking questions about the things that we can't see. Can you see love? Nope. Can you see the wind? No, but you can feel the wind. I know it's there. And I know love oftentimes by the absence of it. When I am lonely and just crushed, wow, do I want to be in a relationship where I feel like I'm loved? So those spiritual things that you can't see but that are so vital to feeling healthy and confident and grounded and present. Man, oh man, that recalibration, I think, then informs, okay, so now that I'm feeling a little better internally, what do I want to do externally? Should I go back to that job? Should I go back to that band? Should I go back to that team? And then hopefully you're working from the inside out. You're working from your gut. Yeah, of course. So what's next then? What questions are you asking yourself right now? What do you see your future looking like? How do you kind of move forward and continue to grow? What I'm asking myself right now is what does it mean to be a dad? I think you can live pretty selfishly without worrying about too much until you get married. And then I think you ask yourself the question like, who am I as a spouse? When you become a parent, I think you really do realize that the choices you're making and the way you live. And the way you're spending your time is having a direct impact on your most treasured thing. So my son, Amos, nine weeks, and I'm thinking, wow, that nine weeks went pretty fast. And he's growing at a clip. And I just finished a new album with Dispatch, and I'm working on a documentary film with Love, Light, Melody. We're building a school in Nicaragua, top of next year. I want to do two new entrepreneurial things next year that I've been sitting on for about 10 years. I can't do all of it. There's no way I'm going to be able to do all of it. So there's one lane. The other lane is I'm a Jesus follower. I'm having a harder and harder time identifying with the term Christian because I see in our country and in our politics I don't think what is called Christian is very often in line with following the life and teachings of Jesus. And I think the church has become such a massive institution divided by thousands of different denominational strands and a house divided can't stand. And I also don't think that it stands on the right things when it gets to be too large and too institutional. So I told you I was a people pleaser early in my life, well, there's still a strand of that will. I'm still nervous and fearful about articulating my voice and having something to say. But 
what we've just come through with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and countless people of color who have been victims of such crazy violence and injustice and racism and to look at our last president and the things that he said on camera from the biggest stage in the world and how many people that are a part of quote evangelical christianity don't seem to be moving so much in the direction of following jesus as they are about protecting their wealth and as they are about protecting their religion and feeling persecuted and feeling their rights are being infringed upon i just don't see that in the life of jesus i don't see him using the government to legislate his way i see him living for the poor i see him living for the disenfranchised i see him living for the immigrant that's at the southern border i see him living for the sick i see him living for the transgender i see him living for all the people who are oppressed and marginalized so i've never by the way i've never articulated this in public at all so thank you for the chance to say that this is my first step toward finding my growing voice i really want people to know who jesus is from my perspective and what i think it is to align your life with a faith and a belief structure and a spiritual set of beliefs that is so radically loving and puts off so much light that there couldn't be anyone that is judging and saying you're wrong and this is the only way and how dare you and all this divisive horrible stuff this ego struggle so anyway all to say my goodness there are the things that i want to do in my professional life and at the same time i really want to distill my voice spiritually and continue journaling continue asking questions i hope we can have another podcast in 10 years and see just how much you've grown will with your life experience and the people who you've talked to and your spiritual beliefs and your passions and the pitfalls that you've fallen into. And we all learn so much and grow so much if our hearts are open and if our minds are open and if we're curious. And I really want to be curious instead of judgmental about the church. And I want to ask some questions to help reimagine who is this Jesus that's leading this massive faith structure that to me seems like it's so far off course. And as an artist, are there songs I can write? Are there questions I can ask? Are there books I can write that might help? I mean, from my perspective, my two copper pennies that I can throw at it, help us get back on the course of loving people well. Sorry, that's a massive answer because I don't think I can yet make really clear sense of it. But spiritually, I want to know who am I and what do I have to say? as a dad. So I know that I am saying who I am instead of being quiet in the fear of people pleasing. And then on the professional side, just know that if I'm not going to focus on a couple of things, this idea of juggling all the things that I want to do, nothing's going to land well. Yeah, of course. After kind of 
hearing that, and as we come to a close, I'll go to the, the final segment, which is called the PowerPoints, which are just your three takeaways, three things you want to share with the audience that are most important that you've learned through your life experience. What would those three pieces of advice or those three bullet points be? There could never be enough love in the world. I think if all of us gave ourselves to the pursuit of love ahead of all things, beyond the pursuit of money, beyond the pursuit of fame, power, success, there could never be enough love in the world. The love that you give, the love that you invest in the world, I really do think comes back to you. I'm going to stick with the three words, love, light, and melody, which is why I created the nonprofit working out of the trash dump in Nicaragua. There could never be enough light in the world. We need to go places with our eyes wide open and we need to come home and tell the truth. We need to look inside and turn the light on and tell ourselves the truth. Keeping our lives in the light and keeping our experiences in the light and staying vulnerable and you and I sharing with each other, hey, Will, what are you learning? What'd you learn this year? What would you share with me at 46 to remind me what it is to be 17, what it is to be in your shoes. Share something with me. That light, turning on that light, and then hopefully being light and providing light for the world through your the way you live is so important. And then the last thing is melody. Everyone is creative. I don't like it when people say, ah, oh, but you're an artist. We all are creative. We all have the ability to be childlike. You can be an accountant and have a childlike creativity in the way that you build your business. You can be a doctor and have a childlike creativity in the way that you run your business and connect with your patients. You can be a painter, a dancer, a musician. The idea of melody, melody to me is harmony. And when we are in harmony with ourselves and with each other, there's a beautiful sound, a beautiful fragrance, a beautiful feeling that comes from that. So that's why love, light, and melody are the three words branded around working with these kids, a Nicaraguan trash dump. Those kids that had nothing taught me almost everything. Those kids are the ones that reflected back to me the power of love, the power of light, and the power of creativity and melody. So that's what I give myself to as anchor words and then just pursuing the life and teachings of Jesus to figure out how sacrificial can we be in loving people unconditionally and laying our lives down for the people around us. Yeah, of course. On that note, Brad, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, man, I loved it. Now I get the joy of marinating in this for the next couple hours and just reflecting on some of those big, big questions and truths. So thanks for inviting me on and thanks for challenging me with the questions that you brought. Yeah, of course. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Will Brigger, and this is One Hour Interim. Be sure to check out other music episodes with Rick Rubin, David Foster, Ice Cube, The Chainsmokers, and many more. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Make sure to follow on Instagram at One Hour Intern. That's the number one, not the word. And share this episode with your friends. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. 
My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.